0: I wonder this morning if that little sermon bumper resonates. Uh, Are you feeling weary right now in this season of life or in this Christmas season that is meant to focus our attention on the Savior and His coming to earth to ransom us, to rescue us, to save us, and yet oftentimes it can leave us feeling a little weary, a little burdened, a little overwhelmed. And I wonder if you've cried out recently in that feeling of being weary or being burdened. I highly recommend crying out. If you've never done it, it can be a powerful spiritual exercise to really just cry out, to not be reserved and not be stoic and not have this Midwestern sensibility that this part of the world is particularly well known for and just cry out and if you You have to go out into nature to do it, or you have to come into a sanctuary and be alone and just cry out. It can be very powerful. But too often, that cry is silenced, and it doesn't get full expression. And uh, it was even shared with me this morning by Pastor Sandy, who came to our 24 hours of prayer yesterday, late morning. And as she finished, the final station, if you were here, you know the final station had the four words of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. And you were instructed to take the one that you felt you needed most. And Pastor Sandy noticed that all the peace had been taken. That that was clearly the the thing people needed the most going through that experience was peace. And I find that to be really significant um, because we want peace. We want to hear all is well. And we want to believe all is well. And so as we light the Advent wreath this morning, we will relight the candle for hope, which reminds us of last week's first week of Advent, where we talked about kingdom hope, and we talked about the fact that kingdom hope is built on kingdom promises, and God never breaks His promises. But today we light the candle for peace, and we'll be talking about peace, and as we go through this series, A Kingdom Christmas, each week we will talk about how kingdom peace is different than the peace that the world offers, the peace that's available to us apart from the kingdom, that there is a difference. And we'll look at the Old Testament prophecy once again, because the second candle, the peace candle is often referred to as the Bethlehem candle, and we'll look at a prophecy of Scripture from the Old Testament that references Bethlehem in particular. And it's interesting because some of the details of the advent, of the nativity, start to become a little clearer um, as we approach Christmas. Now, Micah is where we will be. So, if you want to start turning to Micah chapter five, you might want to use the index. Uh, Micah is one of the minor prophets; means they're pretty small books, and there's a lot of them really close to each other, right at the end of the Old Testament. If you're using one of our Bibles, there in the seats in front of you, you can turn to page fourteen hundred and forty-five, and you'll find it there. Um, but Micah actually prophesies prior to Jeremiah. Last week we looked at Jeremiah, a passage from Jeremiah, a prophecy of the hope that we have in the kingdom, in the coming kingdom of Christ. Um, He prophesied prior to that, and uh, the, the book of Micah is sort of this alternating back and forth between judgment and then forgiveness judgment and forgiveness. And God is reminding the people of Israel and the people of Judah that they have broken the covenant and that there's judgment that comes along with that. But He's also reminding them of His forgiveness, of His nature to forgive. And one thing that's interesting to me is that the name Micah literally means who is like Yahweh. That's what the name means. And so uh, this prophet of God, this prophet of Yahweh, was given the name Micah by his parents before they knew he would be a prophet perhaps. And his name means who is like Yahweh. Often when you see that A-H at the end of a name, it's referring to or including Yahweh in some way, and this takes on special significance because the final three verses, if you flip over a page to Micah 7, you'll see that the final three verses of Micah's prophecy ask the question, who is a God like you? He's addressing this to God, this prayer, who is a God like you, he says, and it's almost like this subtle reference to his name, and, and perhaps he had wrestled with this throughout his life, you know, this question that his name is means? And he answers that question by closing out his prophecy, focusing on God's love and God's compassion. And those are the elements and those are the attributes of God that he raises up and lifts up for us. Now, the prophecy that we're going to look at today from chapter 5 brings some of the details of the nativity into view, particularly the location of the nativity in Bethlehem, the note location of Christ coming. And I'll be honest, this passage ended up being a little more difficult than I was expecting. Sometimes when I'm outlining a sermon series, I'm like, okay, I've got all these different options, and this is what I want to preach on here. This is where I feel like God is leading here. And I really felt strongly that with the peace and the Bethlehem candle, that this prophecy from Micah would be a wonderful prophecy to focus on today for week two. And I just kind of looked at, you know, verses one through four. And then the first part of verse five is where it says, he will be our peace. And okay, we've got to include that. But i have never really comfortable just like stopping mid-verse especially for a main passage that I'm preaching on. And as I read the, part, the rest of verse 5 and then 6, I'm like, this is really confusing. It seems to be saying something totally different than the other verses. And so uh, fortunately, I was at a library that had commentaries, and I went and got some commentaries out, and I really dug into it, and I found something really, really phenomenal uh, that really enhanced the whole message. And uh, so it was a little more work than normal, but it, it was worth it. And I realized, you know, that's maybe a second point to this whole sermon is that when we wrestle with God's truth, when we really dig deep to really understand it and, and to apply it to our lives, it might be a little bit more work, but it's always worth it. It's always worth it. So we're going to read Micah 5 verses 1 through 6, and we're we'll going to just take one or two verses at a time. So this section opens up in verse 1 with... Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now, this is talking about something that will happen in the future. It's not talking about something right now. You see that in the kind of second half of the verse where it says they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And there weren't any sieges that were taking place at the time that Micah was prophesying. So he's prophesying about something that will happen in the future. And if you're not familiar with ancient military warfare, uh, it's important to understand right now that sieges were horrible. There's some of the worst things, uh, worst accounts that we have of devastation in Scripture are accounts of sieges that took place. And the way that this would work was a more powerful army would come across, uh, come after a city like Jerusalem and they would lay siege to it. They would completely surround it and cut off so that nothing could come out of the city without being killed and nothing could come into the city. And so the city would slowly starve to death and be completely cut off from the outside. And so he's, he's saying this, this is going to happen, there's going to be incredible suffering And this opening phrase, marshal your troops, O city of troops, it's like Jerusalem is the strongest city in the nation of Israel, in the nation of Judah. You have to marshal your troops, but there's sort of an irony here and a little bit of a play on words in the original language, that echo, marshal your troops, O city of troops or O daughter of troops in the original language because they aren't able to raise an army. Israel is weak and vulnerable right now, and everybody knows that. And this final phrase, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod, most scholars think that's pointing to when the armies of Babylon come, they do lay siege on Jerusalem, and it's probably the worst siege that takes place. And when they do finally overtake the city, they strike the king, Zedekiah, at that time, and they blind him, and he's literally blinded and he's humiliated, and that's what this points to, is this humiliation that the, the king would be struck on the face with a rod, that there would, the, the, the ruler of the people would be humiliated in this way. And so they're saying this earthly king is going to, to be humiliated in this way. And then there's this beautiful, beautiful change that comes in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, But you, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And this verse 2 shifts from man's predicament to God's solution. And it's not the solution you would expect, it's not the marshal your troops, O city of troops, it's not the power of the earthly realm that will change things, it is God's activity in a small forgotten town on the outskirts, several miles from Jerusalem, from the center of human power. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, it shifts from man's predicament to God's solution, Bethlehem, that that name of that town means house of bread. And Jesus is the bread of life, he announces in John chapter 6. It means, Ephratha means fruitfulness. And so I can't help but think of the fruit of the Spirit coming into the world through Christ's advent, through Christ's coming and living and dying and then ascending to heaven and sending the Spirit behind him. And though Bethlehem is small and not imposing and not a walled city and doesn't have the resources and the wealth and the power of Jerusalem, though it is small, an unexpected king from a very unlikely place will be coming. And there's the contrast that you see in verse 2 between the weak ruler of verse 1 and the Messiah, the kingly Messiah, and the hope. That he brings. And it's very clear from the New Testament that this prophecy was well known and well circulated, and that the people were expecting the king to come from Bethlehem. And so when the wise men arrive from the east and they say, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? The scholars get together and they say, oh, we know the answer to this question. It's Bethlehem. And they cite that. And even in John chapter 7, when Jesus is saying things that they, that they, they can't reconcile and he's doing miracles that they can't reconcile. And they're like, isn't he just the carpenters? Son, isn't he from Nazareth? They said that the king was going to come from Bethlehem. They didn't know the whole story. But they did know that the king was supposed to come from Bethlehem. So this prophecy took on special significance, and people knew it. And there was a lot of messianic hope and a lot of expectation surrounding this. People knew that something special was going to happen, that there would be an unexpected king from an unlikely place. Now, in verse 3, it sort of switches back. It says, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And so, this, therefore, Israel will be abandoned, that's, that's prophesying this temporary punishment that will precede the permanent deliverance that God will bring, that there will be an accountability for breaking the covenant over and over. This is that alternating back and forth between judgment and forgiveness, that there is consequences. God is a holy God. He is a just God, and breaking the covenant has consequences. But he's saying that prior to this, prior to this King coming, prior to the permanent deliverance that I bring, there will be a season of judgment. And then it echoes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that famous one that says the virgin will be with birth or will be with child, will conceive and will bear a son, Emmanuel, God with us. And so all of this is starting to weave together and it's echoing Isaiah's prophecy, which would have been made about 30 years earlier. And he's saying that this is going to bring great restoration and new unity to the people of God because at this point there was a divided kingdom, all right? If you look at Old Testament history, it started as one nation with 12 tribes, and then there was sort of this division that took place, and Judah was the strongest of the tribes, and so there was the nation of Judah. That's where Jerusalem was, and then there was Israel up in the north. And when it says at the end of verse 3... And the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites, saying it will be reunited. This was a theme that we picked up on in in Jeremiah's prophecy last week, that there would be this coming back together, this reuniting of the people of God. And so all of this is in play here. And then we get in verse 4, really verse 4 in the first phrase of verse 5 is really the heart of this prophecy. And in verse 4, the clarity about this king. Comes into full view. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. So, verse 4 is telling us about this king, but it's not an ordinary king. It's a, it's a shepherd king that this king won't just take from the people to build his own wealth and power and significance, but that he'll be a shepherd to his people. He'll be a shepherd king, and shepherds feed, and they lead, and they protect their sheep. And so he's saying he'll be a shepherd king over them. Interestingly enough, Ezekiel 34 came on my radar during the 24 hours of prayer, and it fits so powerfully with this because Ezekiel 34 is all about God bringing a complaint against the shepherds of Israel who had not been shepherds at all. They had extracted and manipulated and coerced and taken for themselves from the people that they were supposed to be shepherding, and God says He's done with it, He's had enough of it, and He is going to be their shepherd. He is going to come and He is going to shepherd His people the way that shepherds are supposed to shepherd their people. And, and then you see this passage, and it's kind of like, okay, God, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm listening. That this is an important aspect of God as our King, of the kingdom that He came to establish, is that He is a shepherd King, that He feeds and He leads and He protects. He doesn't extort. He does all of this, we're told, in the strength of, Of the Lord versus the strength of a human king versus man's strength and man's ability. He does it in the majesty and authority of God, not of man. And we're told they will live securely, they will live in peace. They're secure in the shepherd king's rule over them. And then it says, you know, at the end of verse 4, and, and his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. His reign is going to be universal and eternal. It's not just going to fill in the borders of Israel. It's not even really a political designation of a kingdom. It's something new. It's something better. It's it's an order of authority that the order of authority of heaven is going to come to earth. And that everywhere that God's will is done will be the kingdom. And that kingdom will expand and that kingdom will increase. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then verse verse 5, that first phrase, and he will be their peace. The Messiah king, the shepherd king will be their peace. And peace here is the word shalom. It was a very important word in the Hebrew language. When you met somebody uh, as a fellow Israelite, you would say shalom to them. You would say shalom before you said anything else. You would extend peace to them. You would wish them peace. And shalom meant so much more than the absence of conflict. Shalom means this well-being, this wholeness, completeness, that all is well. And it's an expression of peace. It's a proclamation of peace. It's wishing security and prosperity and well-being. And that's why Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. He brings that peace to us. He brings shalom to us. He wants us to have security. He wants us to have prosperity. He wants us to have this general well-being, not just externally in our physical lives, and our relationships, but also internally, that we would have an internal peace, a spiritual peace, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. In fact, you could make a point that we don't really know the peace of God until we encounter the peace of God in a difficult circumstance. When we look around and we say, all is not well, and then we lean into the Spirit, and we lean into our relationship with God, and we say, even so, all is well. And Our relationship with God can grow more in difficult circumstances than it can grow in perfect circumstances when the sun's on our face and we all agree, all is well. In fact, there's a quote that came across my radar just this morning from Chuck Swindoll. And he says, When I ask people when they really grew spiritually, I have never had someone describe an easy time. Never. Because it's when we go through a difficult time and we lean into our relationship with God and we find that even though the physical circumstances and the situation surrounding us are not all that great, when we can say all is well because I'm in relationship with the God of the universe because he loves me and he says that I am of infinite value to him, all is well. And when we can say even in this world that just seems like it is going in the wrong direction at increasing speed, this world is not all there is. That all can be well. That for eternity we have a promise that all will be well. And eternity is a very long time. And we're so focused on this little sliver of eternity that is our earthly existence. And we forget, man, it's going to be really good forever if we're in Christ. If we, if we have come to faith in Christ, if we have believed in Him, if we have received Him, if we have sought to follow Him and give our lives and our wills to Him, then all is well, even when all is not well. And so Micah is talking about so much more than the absence of military conflict. He doesn't say he will bring their peace. He says he will be their peace. And so even in the midst of military conflict, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of something as horrifying as an ancient siege, he can be our peace. And we can have that peace for eternity. And I was reminded of this saying, perhaps you have seen it before, that if you know Christ, you know peace. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation you find yourself in, if you know Christ, know Him intimately, know Him deeply, and He knows you because you are in a moment-by-moment relationship with Him, then it doesn't matter what's going on around you, you can know peace. But then there's the play on words. The flip side of that is if there's no Christ, then there's no true peace. Even if you're sitting in the lap of luxury, even if you're on the beach in some tropical setting and you have no cares in the world, but you don't know Jesus Christ, then your peace is partial and fleeting and temporary. But if we know Christ, He will be our peace, regardless of what's going on around us. And then I had these final part of verse 5 and all of verse 6, and it's like, what is going on here? This, I had it. I had it all worked out. I had it like th- that was the message, right? And it's like, okay, but he will be their peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortress, we will rise against him, seven shepherds and even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our border. I'm like, what is going on here? And so that's when I got out the commentaries. And I'm like, that's not what happened when the Assyrian invaded their land. You can read about it. It's right there in Scripture. When the Assyrians invaded, they decimated the place. It was awful. And when Babylon came in behind, they cleaned up anything that the Assyrians hadn't taken. And so that's that's not how the Messiah King worked. And so that's where I got really confused. And then when you look into this, there's people that, you know, have PhDs and they've spent their whole life studying this and they they know everything intimately inside and out. And so the reason that I italicized part of that, when you look at verse 5, where it begins when the Assyrian invades our land and goes through verse 6 up until it says he will deliver us from the Assyrian, now it's referring back to Christ. But that italicized part, several scholars said that's actually probably a Hebrew war song because it rhymes and there's a meter in the original language that doesn't come through in our translation and it's almost like they're going to rally the troops right and it's like God is saying this is your solution is to rally the troops but you can't even raise an army and your solution is to say oh if you come after us we're going to raise up all these people and we're going to come after you and we're actually going to end up occupying Assyria that's what this little war song says and that's not at all what happened they got squashed because of what God said would happen in verse three, that Israel would be abandoned. And so none of this makes sense until you kind of frame that italicized part as this Hebrew war song, that then it all makes sense. And it's all saying that there's a human solution to this and that's to get everybody all pumped up. <laughs> and yet, that's not the divine solution. This Hebrew war song is included sort of ironically between He will be their peace and He will deliver us and it's done so to bring the real emphasis on the divine deliverance to come. The real emphasis here is not on what we can do in our own power or what this weak nation could do in its own power because it had abandoned God and abandoned the covenant that God had made with them. It's to point to coming Messiah, more emphatically, that he will be their peace, that all of these ideas that you have about what you're going to do on your own, apart from God, will fail. He will deliver you. He will deliver you. And you see, a military victory was all they could think about, but that was much too small a thing for God. That was much too small a thing. You see, God had something much much bigger in mind for our prince of peace than to deal with a political conflict. And we talk about this at Easter sometimes because the same situation was alive and well when Jesus was walking on this earth. They had been looking for a political king to come in and to throw off Roman oppression and to establish a new political kingdom where they would be answering to nobody. They would be their own people. And at that point as well, God had so much more in mind then putting a political skirmish to bed. Flip forward in your New Testament to Ephesians chapter 2. After the Gospels, after Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, you'll see Galatians, then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, we get a little more insight into what God had in mind with this coming Messiah, this shepherd king. And so I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. I'm going to skip a couple of parts that refer to things like the law and, and circumcision because they're not pertinent to the argument here, but I, I just want you to know that I'm, your Bible's not different than mine. I'm just condensing them a little bit. Because here's what Paul says, writing to the church at Ephesus, writing to the The church in the region of Ephesus, this letter got circulated more than any other. There were more copies of it in the ancient world than any other. And here's what he says right after he's preached the gospel. Okay, verse 11 comes on the heels of that great, great passage where it says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And then verse 10, he says, therefore, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works in his name. Then he says, therefore, in light of all that, in light of the gospel, in light of the grace of God, in light of the new identity that you have, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that's us. Skip down just a little bit into verse 12 were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. It's not a very good situation, is it? And it's not just the people of God in ancient Israel. This is like talking about the whole world now. But, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Does that sound familiar? Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Down to verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came, and preached peace to you who were far away and to peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Do you see what God had in mind? It wasn't just to throw off an Assyrian king for a few people. He was... He was bringing the whole world peace through Jesus Christ. That's the hope and the joy of Christmas. That's love invading our world, bringing full victory of Christ over sin and death and the full victory of Christ in the unity of the Jew and the Gentile into the family of God. You see, they wanted him to destroy their earthly enemies. And he said, I'm going to turn them into your friends. I'm going to turn them into your family. That's how God wages war. The only thing that he destroys in verse 14 is the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That's what the king of peace comes to do is to break down the hostility, to break down the barriers to true peace. Here's your bottom line today. Kingdom peace is perfect, permanent peace. It's not temporary, it's not partial. Kingdom peace is permanent, perfect peace. And that's why kingdom peace is different than the world's peace. So often in worldly conflicts, one does get the upper hand and takes over and they squash their enemies and they say there's peace. At the time of Jesus, the Pax Romana had been in place for some time. The idea of Roman peace was kill everybody who stands against you and there'll be peace. That's not God's version of peace. God's version of peace, kingdom peace, is permanent peace. It's perfect peace. And that's why kingdom peace is better than the world's peace. Because worldly peace is only partial and temporary. But kingdom peace is perfect, permanent peace. And so I wonder this morning, where do you need peace? Where do you need kingdom peace? Where do you need His perfect, permanent peace? Do you need it in your soul? Are you you here today? Are you listening online? Are you watching this? And you recognize you don't have peace with God, the Father. You don't know Christ. And the peace that you have known at times has been partial and imperfect. And today, something is drawing you to know Christ. Something is drawing you to surrender to him, to invite him into your life and to give him lordship over your life. Do you need peace in your soul? Have you tried to find it other places and it's always partial and it's always temporary? We can know Christ. We can know peace today. Do you need peace in a relationship? Is there a broken relationship in your life? And you need the peace of Christ to come into that relationship. And maybe that involves reconciliation between you and someone else. Maybe that involves forgiving someone else. Maybe that involves asking someone else for forgiveness, humbling ourselves and saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Do you need peace in a set of circumstances? Maybe a set of circumstances are very challenging and there's no peace. And you need to know Christ deeper in the midst of those circumstances so that you can know peace in the midst of those circumstances. Have you been looking to yourself or looking for a human solution? Have you been getting yourself all fired up with some psychobabble mantra that doesn't have anything to do with the one source of true peace? The king of peace. Is it time to release the outcomes and trust God? Because so often, when we ask for something, we have a very narrow set of outcomes in mind. And if that set of outcomes doesn't come to pass, we think that our prayer hasn't been heard and that God isn't involved. And yet God is saying, maybe it's time to release the outcomes to me and to know me in the midst of challenging circumstances and to find peace. And keep in mind... That Micah and his audience, those that read this letter when the ink was still wet, they had to trust in the eternal goodness of God. These things didn't happen during their lifetime. They came centuries later. And they wouldn't see all of this that we've just been reading come to pass. They didn't see Ephesians 2. They never could have imagined all that God would do or how he would accomplish it. And so we have to keep this in mind as well. We have to keep in mind that kingdom peace is perfect, permanent peace. And we can't even imagine all that God has in store for us. That comes a little later in Ephesians. That we can't even imagine all that God has for us. But hang in there. Because it will be good. It will be worth it. It will be forever. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are mindful of all that you have accomplished at Christmas and at Easter, all that you have promised to us and all that you have done for us. And so, Lord, we we look to you to be our peace, not just to bring what we may have asked for, but to be our peace, regardless of our circumstances, that we can know peace, that we can know that you are good, that you are with us, that you are for us, that you love us more than we can even imagine. And for those who are struggling today in one way or another, those who are looking for peace, may we find it anew and afresh in you. For those who are in need of salvation. May they reach out to you today. May they confess that they have sinned and fallen short of your glory. May they embrace the gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus. May they believe and receive your forgiveness. May they walk in faith with you wherever we are, Lord, whatever we need, may we find it in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.